Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for listening. As you think about the changes you'd like to see in the new year, many elected officials are also thinking about the changes they'd like to see in procedures, policies, and law. One area that's getting a lot of attention is the criminal justice system. In the last few years, we've seen so much more open criticism of law enforcement agencies, the court system, local, state, and federal government policies regarding the criminal justice system. We've also seen elected officials talk about centering humanity over fear and offering potential solutions to problems and challenges. Back in November, I moderated the closing panel discussion of a two-day conference organized by the Minnesota Justice Research Center in St. Paul. The topic was reimagining justice. Every year, the center brings together experts, policymakers, victims, advocates, and formerly incarcerated people to engage in thoughtful discussions on how to reimagine the criminal legal system. The speakers included Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, DFL State Representative Cedric Frazier, Ramsey County Attorney John Choi, and St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter. This hour, you'll hear what reimagining justice means to them and how they believe we should be doing it. The conversation started with Mayor Carter delivering the opening remarks and describing his vision of public safety. You know, a couple of years ago, we went through hell right here in the Twin Cities. A couple of years ago, the eyes of the nation, the eyes of the world, the eyes of CNN, the eyes of every media reporter on the planet was suddenly focused on the Twin Cities metro area uh, around this exact topic that we're talking about right now. What is the relationship between police, police officers and members of the community? What, what, what should the relationship between police officers and members of the community rightly be? Um, and in that time, in that moment, I got a chance to do some storytelling on behalf of our region. And one of the things that struck me most profoundly as... Um, folks would ask me like what I thought the takeaways were about the murder of George Floyd. I remember telling people over and over again, I think the most important thing you have to know about the murder of George Floyd is just how fundamentally unsurprising it was in the course of American history. Sadly, of course that was going to happen. You know, I, I, I'm a part of a community of people who have watched this play out for a number of years. And, and, and as a side note, my pastor would say, let me part parenthetically to just say that this conversation that we've seen play out on cell phone videos um, is only as new as it is because cell phone videos are new. And I like to remind all of my friends in policymaking spaces that the only logical conclusion is that the, the, the incidents that we see play out on cell phone videos is the new and improved and upgraded treatment that ends up happening because now we know that there's cell phone videos out there. You know, and folks would ask me, uh, you know, what are you going to do different, Mayor, now that this has happened, this horrific event has happened? And I would tell them, listen... The truth is nothing. We're not going to do anything different because this happened. And the reason is because this didn't suddenly happen. The reason is because we knew that we had to start this work a very long time ago. I think we've been doing it wrong. 
and I share this with my team a lot. We, me and you, inherited a model of city building that I think is backwards and messed up. We are told when I got elected office, uh, folks said, listen, your biggest job is your biggest jobs are public safety and economic development. And where public safety is concerned, all they really mean is our, our, our job is to, to, to sort of find all the bad guys in community and lock them up and get them out of the way so, so us good guys can go about our life, right? And where, where, where economic development is concerned, all we mean is like get, get all these local residents out of the way, get all these local businesses out of the way, and let's see if we can find some business in Memphis or Miami or better yet, Minneapolis, and we can give them some money. And get them into our community. All I'm saying is the models of city building that we've inherited together are models that value place over people. The model of public safety that we've inherited says we're going to draw a circle and we're going to put some people on the edge of that circle. And their job is to just protect the people who we think are inside the circle from the people who we think are outside the circle at all costs. And it's incredible for me because you, I'm going to tell you this, I'm black. (laughs) No, I I have been all of my life. (laughs) Which means I was once a 16-year-old boy. Which means I was once a 17-year-old driver behind the wheel of a two-tone gray 1984 Monte Carlo, which every police officer on the planet will tell you is the most stolen car in America, pre-Kia and Hyundai. (laughs) And... I could spend the rest of your time here today telling you about my stories of being pulled over and knowing I wasn't speeding, of being pulled over and knowing I stopped for that stop sign. But then at the same time, I know many of you know my father is a retired St. Paul police officer. So when we look at that circle, it's intriguing because I grew up on both sides of that line. I grew up knowing what it feels like to be inside that circle. And I grew up knowing what it feels like to be outside of that circle. And so for many of the first couple of years of my administration, I would tell people, if you go through this city and ask people what they don't like most about their mayor, the two most common answers you'll get is he's hired too many police officers and he hasn't hired enough police officers. Which sounds funny, but it demonstrates the gap that exists, that that line creates based on whether I perceive myself as in front or behind those officers. And so all we're talking about when we talk about reimagining public safety is we're talking about a public safety system that focuses on, get this, public safety. A public safety system that's about keeping us all safe. You know, post-COVID, we saw this like big spike in violent crime across the country. In St. Paul, like many places around the country, we experienced a, a record number of homicides in our community. And a reporter looked at me and said, you know, you, you, you spent all this time talking about reimagining public safety. Um, given that St. Paul has just experienced a, a, a record number of homicides, do you still feel like public safety should be reimagined and why? And I said, well... Yes, because we just experienced a record number of homicides in our city. But that's the psychosis. And that's one of the psychoses that I have to live, that our lieutenant governor has to live, is every day we're surrounded by people, and public safety is the most pronounced. We're surrounded by people who will tell you, and the people who will tell us the loudest, 
that we are dissatisfied with all of the outcomes we have ever experienced with regard to our public safety infrastructure are the exact same people who will get loudest to block us from changing our public safety infrastructure. So we have a lot to talk about. I'll get out of your way. I'm, I got to race to another event. You have an exciting thing. But I want you to know that in St. Paul, we're, we're, we're advancing this model that we call our community first public safety framework that starts with saying, you know, well, actually, it doesn't. It's, it starts way before somebody calls 911. Because I tell folks a lot, like, I think part of our problem with public safety in America is we've mistaken public safety for emergency response. So like in my house, I have a three-year-old, right? And if you were to tell me keeping our plan to keep her safe was to make sure that somebody goes to jail after they do something hard, bad to her, we'd have to talk some more. (laughs) Public safety is about those little plastic plugs that I put in the outlet to keep her from getting hurt. It's about those little little foam things I put on the corner of the the table. It's about us figuring out what are all of the things that could befall this little child and how do we safeguard our home? And if you show me a neighborhood where we are concerned about public safety, I'll show you a neighborhood who hasn't been invested in from a safeguarding perspective. And so our goal is to safeguard. Our goal is to right-size our responses because we all know this. There are problems that just can't be solved with handcuffs and badges. Um, our goal is to make sure that we do have handcuffs and badges when there are problems that require handcuffs and badges because we know that our community members deserve to be protected as well. So our goal is to make sure that we do have those available when we need them. And when they show up, they are someone who is helping us up and not putting their knees on our necks. I tell folks all the time, I don't think a city is a stack of buildings and streets. I think a city is a family that has to take care of one another. And that's what this is about, is saying instead of a a, a system that says, you know what, if we think you're on the margins, our goal is going to be to push you further away. We're building a system that says if we think you're on the margins, our goal is to pull you in so that you can be a part of our thriving community. That was St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter speaking at a conference in November organized by the Minnesota Justice Research Center in St. Paul. The topic was reimagining justice. Now, after the mayor's opening remarks, I moderated a panel discussion. The speakers included Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, DFL State Representative Cedric Frazier, and Ramsey County Attorney John Choi. Here's the lieutenant governor responding to my first question. I asked her why reimagining justice is so important to her. I think it's important to reimagine justice because there are so many folks who experience injustice every day. And in Minnesota, we have had um, a real commitment to the status quo and to not having conversations um, that are challenging around issues of justice And I think that there are so many folks who do not trust the system for good reason. And as we are changing the folks who are making decisions, I think that matters. As our leadership more accurately reflects the community it seeks to represent, we are getting different results. But I'll just say this. This is personal for me because my dad left home when he was 15 because there were too many mouths to feed in the house. And eventually, he ended up in Red Wing and was incarcerated. And that story is not unique. And I know what it's like to be on the other end of the phone line with my brother. You have 60 seconds left. You have 30 seconds left. And making sure that you say all the things that you need to say before that line clicks off. So that is why this is personal to me. 
And we have to be willing to have these conversations um, that challenge that status quo where we have choice points along the way, especially when we are in moments of crisis, to be able to say, how do we pause and stop and not react from a place of fear? Because reacting from a place of fear in policymaking is what has gotten these unjust results uh, in the state of Minnesota. Representative Frazier, uh, reimagining justice, that, that's a powerful phrase because it, it, it implies that it's broken and needs to be completely rebuilt. Uh, how do you view this in terms of why it should be a priority? Um, it's not broken, <laughs> but it does need to be fixed. And it's not broken because the results that we're seeing in the justice system that we have, the system was designed to create these results. So my perspective, just, just a little bit of background, I, I grew up on the south side of Chicago for any south siders out there. Um, but I grew up in a community called Inglewood. And, and in that community, I can tell you that when they, when they doubled down on the justice system that was in place, my community didn't feel any safer. It did not feel any safer. In that community, when they doubled down, I saw more police officers, but I didn't feel any safer in that community. And the crime rates didn't change in that community. And I can tell you what we really needed were more jobs. We needed more affordable housing. We needed more investment in our schools. Those were the things that we needed to ensure that we would have safer communities. But those things were never answered by the policymakers when I was growing up. The the idea of public safety always meant, and the mayor talked about this, that, that idea always meant lock up the bad guys. And that always meant put more police in a place where we're seeing crime. So when my communities were being over-policed and they were getting people sucked into the system that should have never been there, it created a, perpet- a perpetual cycle of the violence, of the incarceration and recidivism that had all these collateral impacts. That meant it was hard for you to get a job. That meant your education was being disrupted often, which means you had poor outcomes which means that statistically, and I always, always talk about the idea that statistically I'm not supposed to be sitting here in these role with these titles having this conversation. Because the way the investments didn't happen, the way the policies were, were framed in a way to ensure that someone that looked like me did not make it out of that community with an education, able to have a good job, able to move to Minnesota, get a bachelor's degree, get a master's degree, get a law degree, and then run for office. Statistically, the policymakers put policies in place that statistically made it impossible for things like that to happen. So me, when I think about being a part of the, part of the system and being in the system to reform our justice system, I am always focused on how do we create things? How do we create the opportunity and the, and the possibility so that there is no exception? There's no exception, but it is a norm to see people like me be successful to see people like me sit on stages like this and have this conversation. And hope ultimately not to have to have this conversation, right? But to just be able to talk about the incredible outcomes that we're having. And, and when I talk about this, I, I say this to all people because, so I, I'm the co-chair of our Posse Caucus, our people of color and indigenous um, legislative members. And what I say to people is Posse Caucus issues are Minnesotan issues. All across the state, there are folks that look like me to live in communities across this state and to look like our lieutenant governor, all across this state. But what we know, when we look at statistics, there's extreme disparities in the lives of those folks in this state. So when we lift those people up, we're lifting this entire state up. 
And I don't care where you're from or what your ideas are. You should be about lifting this entire state up and caring for all Minnesotans to have credible outcomes. John, you've devoted your whole career to uh, justice, uh, the legal system. And so reimagining justice, you know, what are you seeing that makes this a priority for you? So let me start by kind of underscoring a little bit of what's been said, and, and Cedric, you started it. I just want to, I want this to sit with this audience. Um, and Angela, you started by saying that the criminal justice system may be broken, right? Um, and Cedric talked about how it's not broken, but I want to underscore this. The, the criminal justice system is not broken. It's actually doing exactly what it's doing. It's what it's designed to do. And so that means a lot of the things that are happening within the justice system from various perspectives, those are real. And until I could really understand that, that's when I became a much better county attorney to recognize that what it was designed to do is actually not really happening. We are not necessarily getting public safety across the board for everybody in our community. Uh, we have uh, an overrepresentation, massive disparity in the criminal justice system. And there are just a whole bunch of assumptions and lies that are built in the criminal justice system that we have never actually explored. We believe that by watching TV, that somehow 2% of all of the cases in America, or, or all the cases in America, are resolved in a jury trial. <laughs> That's not true at all. It's only 2% of those cases. In fact, what it is, it's a plea bargaining system that exists to trying to exact out some form of accountability, and it's much like an assembly line. And we never asked ourselves whether or not that assembly line actually works. In fact, I would submit that if we actually look at those outcomes, I will tell you that the more times that someone is involved in the criminal justice system, it will beget further and deeper justice involvement, that we are not changing trajectories at all. In fact, we are just processing people so that we can put scarlet letters on people and then, if appropriate, put them in boxes or cages, and then they will be released. Nobody goes to prison for a very, very long time unless you've probably killed somebody. And again, we see the thing repeat over and over and over again. I think if we want to have a better version of safety and justice in this country and in this community, what we really need to do, it's, it's not about me. I ha- it's not about me as the, the county attorney going in a room with smart people and coming up with some ideas that would actually just create more alternatives to the current system, some off-ramps, but we keep the current system in place. If we truly want to think about a better way it's not about me. It's about our people, our communities, and we need to make sure that the communities that have never been at the table are invited and that we start thinking about how we could do things better because we all want the same thing. We all want a high quality of justice. We want safety. And so that reminds me of our initiative to reimagine justice for youth, uh, which was uh, started back in around 2018, some of the internal conversations And the whole premise of it was to share power with our community, to take our most impacted community, the community that has been most impacted by violence, the community that's been most impacted negatively by the justice system and the system that we have of convictions and sentencings, 
to put them at the front of the table and ask them, what do we need to do? And so the, from the course of 2019 to 2021, we did a lot of learning together. And what we found was that if you go back 10 years in the Ramsey County system, we are not that effective in terms of how we did youth justice, juvenile justice. In fact, the more times people are involved in our systems, more likely they're going to be in prison, and we have massive racial disparity. And so is there a different way? Is there a better way? And so what we have done is we've developed a, a new process by which we bring uh, actually the public defender in the room to help us decide, along with impacted community perspective, about what we should do with a certain category of cases. How should we best respond? How do we, get, how do we address the underlying needs of uh, the young person and the victim? How, do, how can we make that victim whole? And it's really surprising how that has really transformed the way that we are starting to look at things. And we're actually getting better outcomes. And we're actually addressing head-on the racial disparity. Before we did all of this, we had huge disparities in those who would actually be successful in diversion or some alternative. Now, when we refer to a community-based restorative justice, that success rate, the disparity gap, has reduced. And a big part of that is because we're relying and working with community to be a part of that process because we're getting those kids and families to show up. Before, what was happening is kids were failing because they never showed up. So you, you, have, you have witnessed change create change. We're on the front precipice of it, and okay. we're going to document it for the next 10 years. So my goal is to beat the past 10 years, pre-21, and over the next 10 years, we're going to actually produce a better version of justice and safety for all. Now, back to the discussion about reimagining justice. Back in November, I moderated a panel discussion at the annual conference of the Minnesota Justice Research Center in St. Paul. The goal is to bring together experts, policymakers, victims, advocates, and formerly incarcerated people to engage in thoughtful discussions on how to reimagine the criminal legal system. St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter delivered the opening remarks prior to the panel discussion. The speakers included Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, DFL State Representative Cedric Frazier, and Ramsey County Attorney John Choi. I asked the lieutenant governor about the role of fear in our conversations about criminal justice. I think fear is a really powerful tool. And it's a really powerful tool that we have seen um, be at the heart of policymaking. Um, As we look at how uh, decision makers will get um, really caught up in the othering of folks, um, it is... uh, a way to have things be very black and white. Certain folks are in, certain folks are out, certain folks are good, certain folks are bad. Um, And it makes it easier to get people to move, right, to to vote along with you, to do things that can be pretty damaging. I think um, the opposite of fear is hope. I think pardon reform 
is a really powerful thing that we got done this session. So that means that it does not have to be a unanimous decision to ensure someone can have a pardon. It is, uh, you just need two votes out of three, and the governor has to be one of them. The Clemency uh, Review Commission will also expand the number of people who can apply for pardons. I think that brings hope. The Minnesota Rehabilitation and Reinvestment Act, um, which gives people a real opportunity to get back into community and make sure that they have the things that they need, like housing and training and support, um, and, and also making sure that folks know that there is a pathway where to release and to reentry. And it's historic, and it's not happening anywhere else. Um, Restore the Vote, which uh, Chair Frazier um, led on and that people have been leading on for years and years to get us here. And it is the humanity of the people who testified and were willing to share their stories that finally got that also over the line and um, into, into position. And the last thing that I'm going to talk about here with that piece of that fear is that somehow we think keeping people disconnected from their community is a good thing when they're incarcerated. And it couldn't be further from the truth. One of the things in 2015 that we started working on at CDF that we finally got across the finish line because we had this amazing senator, uh, Claire Umu-Verbaden, we have free phone calls for people who are incarcerated to stay connected with their families. And this statistic, I wanted to bring you hope and joy. I want it to be the antidote to fear. is 7.4 million minutes every month since August 1st of conversations between people who are incarcerated and their families and community. And that matters. That connection matters. And that is the antidote to fear. Representative Frazier, uh, how have you seen fear play a role in in decisions about public safety, uh, around criminal justice? What do you see? What have you been a part of? We talk about this fear. In most cases, for most folks, it is a fear that they're going to lose something or something's going to be taken away from them. So we've got this zero-sum mythology that's out there. And what the lieutenant governor just went over, and thank you for going over those pieces so I don't have to go over all of them. (laughs) Those are investments. And, and, and it's investments in, in, in humans. And, and, and John talked about most folks, when they go in, at some point, they're going to come home. They're going to come back to the community. And we should be investing in ways to ensure that when they come back to the community, I always call it creating a smooth landing path back into the community. When they reenter the community, when they're re- replanted back into the community, we should be making sure we have fertile ground for them to grow into when they come back. And, and I always tell this story when I was carrying the restore the vote bill and I had testimony. Okay, it was a snowy Minnesota morning and there was a pastor that came up from Red Wing and she made it there at the last moment to testify. And at the end of her testimony, she said, restored people, restore communities. And that is for, will forever stick with me when I have these conversations. We should always be focused on restoring people so that when they come back, they can give back and pour back into that community. I always tell folks, accountability has its place, but then what? But then what? Because when we talk about fear, we're talking about one thing. We're talking about accountability. We're talking about punishing folks, but we're not talking about then what? What happens after that? John, you're someone who's uh, led with courage, uh, not having, not had a problem with being first or doing things different, but what have you seen when it comes to fear? We have to think about what's driving all of this. And what's driving all of this is what we see and hear on social media, in, in our news. And if you think about what's reported, 
or what we are people are just human beings are interested on in is when bad things happen, right? And so you hear about the revolving door in the criminal justice system and this person was released and oh my god, they this horrible thing happened, and that is horrible. But what's never reported is when something actually works or is successful. And so we get just flooded with all of this negative, right? And when we let that fear overtake us, we get distracted. And I think the antidote to all of that is really all of us here in our communities having conversations with people and talking about the commonality. Because I am absolutely convinced we all want the same thing. We want a strong sense of justice in our community that everyone feels. And that's not true today. We want all people to be safe. We don't want people to be subject to being a victim of a crime. And if you are, we want to help you. Those are values that are everywhere in the state of Minnesota. I also know that the values in the state of Minnesota are about rehabilitation, redemption, and reconciliation. Wherever you go to a place of worship, whether it's a synagogue, mosque, or a church, those are values that are universal to all human beings. But we don't practice it, oftentimes in the criminal justice system, because what we see and what we hear and what we are fed is the worst of all of these situations. So fear can be overcome, but it can all be overcome by all of us thinking and engaging with our neighbors and having bigger and greater conversations and making sure that everybody is, everyone's perspectives are part of that table. Having conversations that promote understanding. Um, Lieutenant Governor, I know you have to leave for another commitment, but before you go, I want to ask you about, uh, as you look to the future, what are some of your priorities um, you know, that you hoped to be able to move forward in the next legislative session or in your you know, remaining term as, as Lieutenant Governor? What I am thinking about and what keeps me up at night is implementation of all the things that just got done in the last legislative session. The next step. Yeah, and and to be real, right? Like, we have to have the premier paid family and medical leave uh, program in the country. We have to make sure that there is a 100% uptake for everyone who qualifies for the child tax credit. We have to make sure that our undocumented brothers and sisters can easily go and get a driver's license. All these pieces are connected I want to make sure that we are delivering on the promises that we already made so we can make the case that we can continue to be bold and go big and do more um, because we have generations of injustice that we are trying to undo. I did the first ever round dance and feast at the Stillwater Prison with um, members of the Native community because they're like, come on in, and we need access to sweat, and we need access to wood, and we need access to rocks, And like that is now happening because of that human-centered connection. And so there are more policies that we can pass, but there's also just more that we can do that we can just do because we're the ones at the table. And that, I think, is also part of um, what we need to to do in this this moment. Thank you, uh, Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan. Thank you for your participation. Um, Let's talk about leadership. I would not want y'all's job, let me tell you. Leadership is, is tough, is very tough, but when we think about some of the more challenging as, aspects of, of public safety and the justice system, what makes it so hard, John? Well, you know, this is a, a really tough time for a lot of people. Um, and I think now, too, we have to acknowledge the fact that it's a tough time for law enforcement. And 
We've had some really hard conversations in Ramsey County about what public safety really is, what is justice, what do we need to do. We've had some public uh, criticisms of one another, myself and the sheriff, but I actually still, I stick with that relationship. I know that I have to work with him. I have to work with law enforcement. Some of those conversations have been really productive. We've substantially reduced the number of non-public safety traffic stops, and I'm talking about the the, the license tabs, the, the thing hanging from your rearview mirror, one headlight out, one brake light out. And we've reduced the racial disparities in those stops dramatically. And African-American drivers and motorists have had the biggest percentage reductions. But we did that working together with our community. And then come January of 2024, um, every law enforcement agency in Ramsey County will actually now start using the alternative because instead of having to pull somebody over, we've created a way in which you can enter in that license plate and we can send out a notice, we can get you a voucher, a coupon to get your taillight fixed, or we will have financial assistance for your payment, payment of that license tab. But that was a really hard conversation. When I first announced that back in September of 2021, I got a lot of criticism from a lot of people. Representative Fraser, uh, if you look at some of the news headlines, if you're a leader in uh, public safety right now, it, it, it's challenging. Uh, what do you see as some of the more challenging aspects of, of someone being in a decision-making role uh, in public safety? I, I think it's getting above the, the, the narratives, the, the negative narratives that are always out there. Um, how, do you, how do you work above that? And I think what John talked about was part of it is continuing to have those conversations. Um, we know we have on one side um, folks really don't want to be engaged at all with law enforcement. But then on the other side of that, people want much more of law enforcement to, to be around, to see law enforcement, to feel safe. I have a lot of conversations with law enforcement with the roles that I'm in and the committees that I serve on and the, the legislation that I carry. And, and what I hear from all of the ones that I talk to is they, they also want the same thing. They got into the profession because they wanted to be able to keep communities safe. They got into the profession because they thought it was a noble thing to do, and they took those words to protect and to serve. They took them to heart. And what they also tell me is that and if, if there's folks in our profession that are doing things that are destroying the integrity of our profession, we want those folks held accountable. And I think that is something that, that everyone needs to know. They are saying that. Folks that are police officers and law enforcement, police chiefs, they are saying that. And in large part, they agree with putting things in place to ensure that there's accountability, to ensure that people can see the transparency, that people can see that people be held accountable. We're not going to agree on everything. I know that. Some things we're moving at a pace that they may not want to move at. But ultimately, ultimately, continued conversations will get us in a space that where I think we can move together, together to create a better system for everybody. And I think that's the one thing the law enforcement association can say. If they call me, I'll call them back. If they ask for a meeting, I'll meet with them. Well, we're going to have the conversations. They're going to be tough conversations, but we have to keep having the conversation because they are, in this current system, they are stakeholders. They're a big, big stakeholder in this conversation. And without us moving together and working together and trying to be as collaborative as possible, we're not going to get the, the, the modification and the reimagining that we need to happen in our system. Let's talk about uh, the last three years and, and what has been done since the murder of George Floyd in 2020. Um, what are you seeing that is an improvement? What's going right, John? A lot of the things that we did, have done were before George Floyd. We started the, you know, this work a long time ago. So we have uh, a helpsealmyrecord.org. 
uh, which is now statewide, but it started in Ramsey and Washington counties back in 2019. And we have mitigated collateral consequences for hundreds of people in Ramsey County. As a society, we don't stop punishing people. Even after they have done everything that we've asked them to do, their period of probation, their sentence, the system that we have of collateral consequences and your inability to get access to housing, to jobs, is a real thing. And also, too, if you don't have United States citizenship status, there's another thing that's looming for you. You might be removed from this country if you have a certain type of felony record. In many of those instances, that mitigation that we did is saving them from actually being removed from this country. Because what they might have done a long time ago, 10 or 20 years ago, it might have been some felony damage to property, a drug conviction, right? This person, actually, at some point, when uh, the federal government comes knocking, they could be separated from their families and their communities. And Representative Frazier, is there an an example, something that stands out uh, in the last three years that you're like, yep, see, that's good. We need more of that. Is there something that you have found to be effective, that it's a real change? Almost immediately because we, it's come up a couple of times, but restoring the vote for folks that have felony records is a big, is a big deal. That's a big deal. And it's, it's, it's a big deal because we know statistically, when John talked about following the data, statistically folks that have the ability to vote and be engaged in that way in the democratic process are less likely to, re- to reoffend. They're less likely to go back into the incarceral state and back into the system. So that, that's a big deal. But and another thing I think about is the way that we've now begun to focus on having mental health professionals as a part of our emergency response and as a part of our public safety system overall. And that's another thing I'll, I'll go back to. When I've, when I've done ride-alongs or I've had conversations with rank and file officers, they talk about being dispatched to calls where they feel woefully unprepared to engage with individuals that are having a mental health crisis and how they would appreciate if they, they had acknowledge to, that. They acknowledge that. They absolutely acknowledge that. And how they appreciate, as, as we're moving in a, in a, to a system that incorporates more mental health professionals into it, how they appreciate having someone there at least to guide them or being able to send someone out that is prepared, that has been trained to deal with those situations. So those things, I'm, and, and it's going to take time to see how much it has an impact. But we're, anecdotally, we're hearing things from folks that are saying how much it has an impact. And we're hearing from officers themselves saying things have been better knowing that we can send someone out that is trained to do that job to respond to folks in a crisis in a situation like that. I'm encouraged by conversations, right? I mean, I, I'm a talk show host, so conversations is a big part of my life. But I'm not the only one. I mean, I'm talking about what you all are talking about or what you all are telling you want to hear uh, journalists talk about. And, and, and I think I'm encouraged by the fact that people are curious and they want to, to know what they can be doing or or understand why someone has an opinion that they do. And so I, I think that that is a sign of, of some progress, that we're willing to, to voice what we're thinking and care about. Right? Um, let's, as we think about the future and looking forward, in the 2024 legislative session, uh, what do you see as, as, as something that you really want to prioritize? I asked the lieutenant governor that question, but as you uh, return to, to your job in the House, what do, what do you... What are you thinking about? Well, well, for me, I, last session I got to carry some gun safety, uh, a gun safety bill. 
And it was the extreme risk protection order bill, known as red flags to most people um, here and around the state. And we got that put into place, which I, I truly believe was going to save lives. Um, but it didn't, it's, it's not the, to me, that is the, that is the baseline thing that we should have had in place a long time ago. We also closed the loopholes for background checks, things we should have had in place a long time ago. I, I believe they're going to save lives, they're going to help. Um, but the gun violence that we see in some of our communities, not all of our communities, but in some of our communities in this state and around the country, there's other policies we need to put in place to effectuate change there. So I'm, I am working now on a gun safety package that will look at our policies and our laws and how we deal with that to incentivize the reduction of, of gun violence in communities. And that's a big deal for me. So again, I come from my lived experiences. I came from a place where gun violence was rapid and prevalent. And that is something that had a huge impact on my life. And I know that in communities where it is impactful, that is why people feel really unsafe, knowing that there's so many guns in a community and that they can be uh, touched by that type of trauma at any moment in their life. And so I'm looking at focusing on policies to bring reduce those and those times that it could happen. But are you optimistic that you'll have support? I'm feeling pretty good right now from the conversations we're having. <laughs> John, as we look at 2024, uh, what would you like to see happen? Well, one thing that I'm going to try to prioritize with the legislature and at the federal government is to continue some funding that we got from Congresswoman McCollum. Uh, back in, I would say, February, March, April of 2021, we as a community, and that includes law enforcement and everybody that's part of the system, we were at our worst at actually doing the job of actually addressing some of the increase in crime that was happening in our community. What was happening is that we were all blaming each other. You know, you know the police were blaming uh, prosecutors. Prosecutor could easily deflect to the judge. And city council members would say, well, go talk to the county. And nothing was really getting done. And Representative McCollum uh, got us an appropriation uh, of $900,000 to work on gun violence uh, initiatives, to work with community and to fund them, to do violence interruption, but also to do some coordination. And that coordination has helped lead out something called the Violence Reduction Leadership Group, which we just get all the elected officials and the police chiefs in the same room and say, let's stop pointing fingers at each other. And let's get to real solutions. That's how we had some really tough conversations around what we needed to do around our youth justice system and what judges were telling us about the lack of options that they had uh, to deal with uh, young kids that were you know, committing some very, very serious crimes. But we came up with a solution in Ramsey County. We figured that out. We also have now had some even more important conversations about how to address some of the gun violence. We're working better together. We're cooperating and I think that's the secret sauce. We're going to seek to get some additional resources so that because that money is going to run out. And what I want to do is I want to keep people talking to one another, people committed uh, to finding solutions that we can all agree on. And there is so much that we can all agree on. Um, we just need to find the courage, I think, actually, to agree with one another. That's the problem, I think, in American politics. Uh, lots of people can't agree with the other side. In... Um your closing remarks, I would love it if you could speak uh, really directly to the audience uh, for those of us who are not elected officials, who don't have law degrees, but, but care and really do share this, this common desire uh, of safety and unity and um, just to be able to have some peace. Uh, what, en what encouraging words can you leave us with and what we can do to feel empowered and not hopeless? John? 
I think that one of the things in this country is that there isn't enough feeling of ownership of our systems, our criminal justice system. It all belongs to you. And so what I say is that more and more people pay attention to what's happening, the actual outcomes, and coming to this with some curiosity. You know, it's, we can all have our own life experiences and our own wisdom, and we just think we know the answers. I think it's so important for all of us to have the humility to also understand that we might be wrong and to listen to one another and think about the fact that historically many people in this country have not had a version of justice that they really want. And so if you're on the perspective of, like, there is justice in our community, we, 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 this is how you get to safety, stop thinking that you have all the answers and listen to others. But how to get there? It really belongs to all of us, and it includes all of you. And so that's the key, I think. And another way to describe you're wrong could be you're limited in your thinking, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean I, I, that's how I see it, right? Uh, Cedric, what uh, words of encouragement do you have uh, for those of us who are just, you know, just, just trying to get through the day and, and do no harm but, but want to see everybody do well? In the same vein as, as John, I mean, you... We, we live in a very, very connected world now, or we can be. We, we have a choice. We can be very connected. Social media allows us to be more connected than we've ever been in our lives. But, or you can use social media and you can be in kind of an echo chamber of folks that think just like you and not go outside that cycle. And what Angela just said about limiting yourself, that's how you limit yourself. And if you don't limit yourself, if you focus on expanding your knowledge, expanding the base of folks that you talk to, expanding your understanding of what's happening, not in the world, but just in your community, in different areas of your community, that's how we can be better for everyone else. Because without the community, I'm not up here and, and John's not up here. We don't have these titles. We don't have these roles without people putting us in these roles. that said, hey, I like your values. They align with mine. I want to see something different. I'm going to elect you. And that's the power that you all have. That's the empowering thing. That's the power that each and every one of you have. You have the ability to put representatives in place in your community at the city council level, mayor, state level, legislators, governor. You have the power to do that, to put people in places that share your values and want the same things that you want. And again, it's about that commonality, right? We all want safe communities. We all want good jobs. We all want good schools for our kids. You have to have conversations, find like-minded folks, open and expand your minds to folks that aren't in your circles, and then go out and use your voice as voters and put people in places to make the change that you want. You have the power to do that. That is your power. Use it. We've been listening to a conversation about reimagining justice. Back in November, I moderated a panel discussion on day two of the annual conference of the Minnesota Justice Research Center in St. Paul. The goal is to bring together experts and policymakers, victims, advocates, and formerly incarcerated people to engage in thoughtful conversations about reimagining the criminal legal system. St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter delivered the opening remarks, and the speakers included Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, DFL State Representative Cedric Frazier and Ramsey County Attorney John Choi. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.